0: The world of chocolate has been turned upside down. A very unusual situation. You saw the stacks of cash in our office. Chocolate comes from the cacao tree. And recently, varieties of cacao thought to have been lost centuries ago were rediscovered in the Amazon.
1: There is no
0: chocolate on earth like this. Now some chocolate makers are racing deep into the jungle to find the next game-changing chocolate. And I'm coming along. Okay, that was a very large crocodile. (laughs) Listen to Wild Chocolate wherever you get your podcast.
2: I feel like a lot of the failure of the pandemic, a lot of the failure of our industry, a lot of the failure of the brigade system is that like it all became so bent on efficiency, just like pumping out stuff, getting ticket times down, getting food costs low, keeping payroll under control. And I get it. Running a business is tough. This industry is tough the margins are crazy it's impossible to become like a rich person off of this work but also like if you build that into the beginning and you realize that there's monetary wealth and then there's like investing in people treating them like human beings that's a wealth in and of itself being surrounded by people
0: You're listening to Copper & Heat, the podcast exploring the unspoken rules and traditions of restaurants. I'm Katie Osuna.
1: How's everybody doing? Good. Okay. Good. Beautiful day. It is. What's the weather? What's the weather like in New York?
0: In this episode, we're talking about the brigade system.
1: I haven't seen you in a long time. I know. It's been a while. I know.
0: <laughs> For this episode, I sat down with two chefs to talk about their views on the brigade system. Before we get to that conversation though, a little bit of context about the system that's used in many kitchens around the world. The story goes that the godfather of fine dining, Auguste Escoffier had been working in restaurants since he was a kid. After spending time in the army, Escoffier brought the system of organization with a rigid hierarchy answering to generals to kitchens. Also inspired by the efficiency movement of dividing labor based on task, as was used in factories, Escoffier developed the brigade to make it more efficient to serve food to people as the popularity of restaurants grew and the demands of feeding multiple people different dishes was more prevalent. Ironically, Escoffier believed that the rigid hierarchy would professionalize the job of cook so that the abuses he endured as a kid in the kitchen wouldn't happen. Also ironically, he believed that with restaurants becoming more efficient— Restaurants would not only become more profitable, but cooks and chefs could then have more time for leisure activities and wouldn't have to work as hard. As we've talked about on the show, there are many cultural reasons and flaws in the restaurant system that prevented either of those things from happening. So instead, we've built this system of rigid hierarchy and division of labor where nobody gets paid very much, except for investors or big group CEOs, and everybody works all the time. But if not a brigade, then how do we structure restaurant work? It's a valid question, and one that doesn't have a clear answer. But there are some people who are challenging the status quo and trying to do things differently. Today we're talking with two chefs that have worked their way up in traditional brigades and have questioned the role that it plays in their businesses. The first is Mike Sheets, who runs the plate sale with his wife Sharitha. The plate sale is a pop-up with a soon-to-be brick-and-mortar restaurant, The Mule Train, in Georgia. Second is Telly Justice. She is one of the co-owners and the executive chef of HAG's in New York, a small tasting menu restaurant in the East Village.
1: I am Mike Sheets of The Plate Cell. I am a partner with my wife. Her name's Sharitha. She's not here right now. We've been in business since 2018. Our sole purpose is to try to evolve voided spaces through community and hope people go out and do good in the world. That's the basis for our business. We've popped up in Atlanta. We're based in Athens and Atlanta. I'm from Athens, Georgia, Georgia native. So a big part of what we do is all about community and how we can include ourselves and our cooking background. For me, my cooking background is taking African-American ancestral recipes and kind of putting a modern approach on them, but still like keeping them in their zones to, you know, appeal to people. I don't know if I said that correctly, but that's what we're going for. That was
2: dope. I'm Telly, and I am based in New York City currently. My partner, Camille, and I recently opened a brick-and-mortar space up here in the East Village called HAGS, and we started back in 2020 as a pop-up to sustain ourselves through the pandemic closure. We saw a moment up here in especially our industry of trying to find ways to convene with our various communities and find ways to show up a little bit more authentically with our food practices, because it was suddenly very apparent that a lot of the systems that we had invested in weren't designed to help us through tough times. And so Camille and I started a practice of offering sliding scale tasting menu pop-up dinners for queer folks and queer allied folks, and that over the past two years has led towards this formal restaurant, which is super small. (laughs) It's all we could manage to do, but we're super proud to have it, and we're super proud to be working towards... What feels like a really impactful moment for the New York queer community, having a space of celebration for itself beyond just like dive bars and greasy spoon type diner establishments, which are amazing places and fantastic places to congregate and Talk and party and celebrate with your community, but we just wanted something a little bit extra special for us. And we've been really lucky and fortunate with the support that we've gotten. And we are continuing to do a sliding scale model for those dinners at least one day a week, which is Sunday, like our Sunday suppers. So trying to keep it accessible to the neighborhood and to our community.
0: This conversation was recorded as a chef to chef conversation for the Plate Magazine print edition. You can read an edited version of this conversation in their magazine now, but a less edited version of the conversation is here. Enjoy.
1: My first time meeting Telly was at five and 10. At the time, she was moving from Atlanta to Athens. So she was driving to Athens every day for six months or so and got promoted to executive chef. What I took from the experience there, like in Athens, it's more, it's a college town. So the talent pool, that's no disrespect to anybody in Athens. I'm just saying the talent pool of driven, chef driven people, it's just, I would say it's not all the way there yet. She would buy them cookbooks and knives and take them to nice restaurants. And I was like, man, that's kind of like what it was all about. It took me back to like my first chef mentor. And when you talk about like, systems in the brigade, like I think for me, I like the organization of it and how you learn discipline and how to get your job done. But the aspects of having like a mentor or someone you can look to, someone that can take the time to teach you, I thought that was something really special.
2: I'll take it even further back because before I met Mike... I saw my cooking. We were doing a spring tonic at crack in the sidewalk and I was a sous chef at Kimball House and Staple House hadn't yet opened. And Staple House in Atlanta, especially at the time, was like all anybody could talk about. It was like, oh man, finally a good restaurant is going to open. Some serious talent, everybody that really knew what they were doing in the kitchen was associating with this project. And I remember showing up being real shy, not really knowing a ton of the other cooks around town at the time, and seeing Mike and being like, oh, damn, that dude got the good job. Like He's going to be doing some serious stuff. And flash forward a couple years later, 5 and 10 was very much like the last-ditch effort for me in Georgia. I'm not from Georgia. It's a place that I chose. And over the seven years that I lived there, I watched it change a lot. And one of the things that I think was most impactful about my time in Georgia, and especially working with such community-minded people like Mike, is that you got to find your place that means something to you and you got to contribute to it, yeah. which is why I'm up here now. This is my home. This has always been a home base for me, the Northeast. But I was trying to find something down in Georgia that that felt like I could stick it out and make it work and carve a little niche for myself. And I remember doing that drive the first day of this new job, walking into the kitchen. And I think it was Mike's, like, second day. (laughs) And I remember being like, oh, shit. Like, this dude is definitely getting all the promotions. Like, I'm shit out of luck over here. But it was a real treat to, to get that work experience to work together. I've learned as much from Mike as I have from any of the people that have mentored me, honestly. And that's one of the beautiful things about restaurant work is that not all lessons come from the top. A lot of lessons come from side to side. And that's an argument for the brigade system. If I have any, it's that you work... Side by side with people in close quarters, every day, all day, you develop these very meaningful relationships that sometimes last a lifetime. And those can be the most impactful, like learning life lessons, seeing how the person next to you cooks scallops, seeing them do it over and over again, it unlocks the secret in a way that like the executive chef can never give you. So in a way, the brigade system works in that it gives you this access points to direct like peer mentorship which is cool. I think where it falls apart is in its its rigidity, like it's too self-selecting sometimes and who makes it to the top and who doesn't. There's a lot of favoritism, there's a lot of selective mentorship like you can pick somebody out on Garmaje and invest in them and they'll be the sous chef in a year while people that have been like grunting it out don't get that same access to mentorship, don't get those promotions. And so it's not it's not really based on merit in the same way that I think maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago you could make that lie, you could make it seem on paper like the people that deserved the promotions and raises were getting them. I think it's just so much more important to create kitchen dynamics where that like side to side peer mentorship is a little bit more free, more more open. The dialogue is you can talk to each other. You can ask why. That's a big thing like especially in the kitchens that Mike and I came up in. There's not a lot of like room for asking why or challenging the techniques and why are we using this ingredient? Why are we treating it this way? Why is this on the menu? That wasn't open for us to discussion.
1: I have one story. I just moved to Charleston and I was working in this restaurant and I thought I was coming in. I was just going to be like hot stuff coming from Atlanta. worked like my first real job. I understand things. But when I got to this restaurant, it was on a whole completely another level. You know what I mean? Another level of dining. And I stopped, I got the job and like it was always a competition, you know what I mean? A competition to get a job. So, like, I was trying to be on Garmage, trying to get that, get my first real experience in a fine dining kitchen. And I worked my tail off. I worked hours early, and I did all the things I was supposed to do. We found out who got promoted within a couple of weeks, and I didn't get it. And like, I was distraught. But it ended up being one of the best things that happened to me because. Honestly, I did suck, you know what I mean? I'm just being upfront. I came in with this cocky attitude and I got humbled because everybody around me was so much better than me, but it gave me time to understand what I wanted to do. It gave me time to learn the processes. I've never worked in a fine dining kitchen, like learning to work clean, efficient, learning produce, learning how to butcher, learning to make charcuterie, whatever that is, whatever it was, I never seen any of these things. And the person that was in front of me had all the experience. I got to actually take time to actually learn how to be a cook and learn to be a chef. I remember one of my chefs told me, working the line is not going to make you a chef. So I got to actually, yeah, I got to take everything in. And it, it was very, 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 very humbling. And it helped me along the way. So when I got to my next job, I was already like, I felt like I was three or four steps ahead because of that experience of me being humbled and taking ego out of it and just trying to learn the craft instead of barging my way into doing something that I wasn't ready for. So that's my story. I guess it's good and bad. Because <laughs> I remember like, I did get a chance to work Garmin and I remember that night like... I got destroyed and I got yelled at and I just lost all of my confidence. Like it was like I got completely obliterated. Mm-hmm. I was at a point of like I was in tears, you know what I mean? I I, I have a question. If you're ultimately trying to be your best. Let's take like Michael Jordan. Like, how insane do you think he has to be? Like, yo, I'm going, I know. I want to win a championship, but I know (laughs) I have to have a team do this. I can't do this by myself, but I know like I have to be on a different level than everybody else Mm -hmm. to get there. Yeah. How can you inspire the people around you? How can you do that? Do you have to be a jerk to be (laughs) the best? You know what I mean? I guess that's a question I want to ask you.
2: Yo, that's a crazy question because I feel like, You know, it's really easy to be idealistic and it's really easy to have this perfect vision of how it's all going to go down in your head. I'm going to be the nicest. I'm going to pay people the most. (laughs) And we are like going to work three hour days. And like in application, when you actually have to get down and do the work, you're like, oh, no, actually, this is still very hard. Like we still got to work hard. Um, How do you encourage people to be disciplined? in your vision when you're trying to do meaningful work, when you're trying to build something of significance? How do you get to that place where everybody's executing it at the level that your guests, your customers require? And that's something that we're still trying to figure out. Honestly, I was trying to figure it out at five and 10 and there were some successes and there were some losses. As nice as a person is, sometimes those pressures that get put on you, they just, they get to you at a certain point. Yeah. At HAG's, the way we do it, and it started more experimental, and I'll say that's about experimenting with labor practices. It's messy, and it's complicated, and I don't recommend it unless you have a very patient, willing group of people to participate in it. So that's my disclaimer going into this. Everybody that worked at HAG's. Knew they were coming into a very experimental setting. But so the way that that we handle things at Hags is, one, the kitchen's incredibly small. It's myself and two other people. I cook, I plate, which is already a divergence. It's different than most brigade systems where the executive chef is rarely even in the restaurant. So having a real hand in the cooking aspect of service and doing it every day is really important, I think, for that peer mentorship to go from somebody that's been, in my case, I've been cooking for 16 years professionally and I have a lot to offer, but I have to be down in the trenches with people to offer it in a way that like makes sense. Executive chefs have a tendency of giving advice that you can't actually use when you're in the the weeds, you know, you're like, uh, That person has no idea what they're talking about. They haven't worked service in seven years. So yeah, like working as a as a cooking chef, I think is important. The size of the team is really important. I have really meaningful relationships with everybody because it's so small. We don't have to spend 16 hours a day working and then four hours at the bar afterwards to build like meaningful relationships where we get to know each other. We get to to know each other like... Just due to our proximity to one another and our shared interests and goals with HAGs, we all want the same thing. We want space that is celebrating of the queer community through food, and we want to build it together. And having that shared goal builds a discipline into it from the beginning. We know how hard it is, we know what's expected of us, and we know, like, how not ready a lot of the country is to receive something like that so we take it seriously from the get-go but when it comes time to apply like a more mentorship role to establishing that discipline i think the way that most chefs get to this discipline through fear habit is by pushing themselves to a place where they start to resent people for making mistakes There's a lot of passive aggressiveness in kitchens, and a lot of people in mentorship roles just start to resent cooks for not being able to execute their visions the first time perfectly and every time. Nobody can sustain that. We're all coming from different places and points. We bring in our own talents and skills, but we're going to fail, like all of us fail. You have to be patient, and you have to be what I say is persistent commentary, which is every single plate every single piece of mise and plus I comment on it and it's not a judgment it's never personal it's just this needs more salt this is not hot enough this is too hot this is this looks weird but if you persistently give feedback every single time it takes away the anxiety that people feel on the line of oh no what if i mess up what if it's not perfect it doesn't matter we're going to make it perfect together every single time if you can only Go this far, I'm gonna help you take it to the end zone. We do this together. It's all hands all the time. And I think it also, just besides like building a discipline and a work ethic with the constant critique, it helps give people a sense of what a chef's eye is for detail versus a line cook's eye for detail. And I think that's one of the biggest gifts that can be given to a young cook is like how to look at food from a more critical eye. What are we looking for as the people that have been cooking for over a decade what flavors what level of acidity what levels of salt are we looking for after years and years and years of doing this building a chef's eye, a chef's hand that's what cooks want one of the things that we learned through like the really experimental beginnings of hags was at the end of the day like you can't have totally communal work like you need roles and responsibilities you need structure. Otherwise, it's chaos, and that is an even bigger anxiety than this Like really rigid structure can be. But I think it comes from just being a genuinely involved person that cares about your team that wants each individual to succeed. It's not about making each individual efficient. It's about being like, hey, this person needs a little tutorial on knife work. I'm going to take the 15 minutes with this person. Even if it's every day, we're going to take 15 minutes and we're going to show them a, a really good set of knife skill practices. Any way to break down like the rigidity and treat the individual like an individual with their needs, their goals, their interests, that's, in my opinion, the best way forward is just being involved and invested in the people you've got around you.
1: Yeah. And to follow what you said, like, kind of saw that. The things that aren't good once the pandemic hit, a lot of people didn't go back to work. You know what I mean? And if you're working 12 hours a day and you're already going into work with stress and fear and like scared of making a mistake in those high stress level kitchens, like when the pandemic hit, most people, well, we know most people didn't go back to work. And those were probably some of the reasons. One thing I love about working in kitchens is like, being a team, you know what I mean? And like, as a teammate, you may have to teach somebody to do something right if they're doing it wrong without completely being a jerk about it, you know what I mean? And in some cases, you know, tensions can be high, but there has to be some type of way of getting the message across of, you know, trying to see the good in people and know that like mistakes happen. I think everybody suffered, everybody had to recreate what they were doing during this time. People that were fine dining restaurants started doing sandwich shops and like just trying to sustain to get through. But if these systems had been in place like before then, like you wouldn't have had such a downturn, I think, of treating people fairly. Things you're supposed to do, pay people, you know, like providing assistance. So like all those things come into place. I guess there's no right or wrong way, but I do think you could have avoided some of these situations if these things had been in place early on. Every instance I've worked in like kitchens, like I've always, and I don't wanna bring race into this, but I've always been like the only person of color in the kitchens I've worked in. My parents never told me to make that as an issue, but that's also another level of stress that you have to deal with on top of trying to do your job right And being consistent in what you do. For me, the
2: kind of like staging and interning and finding entry points into like a traditional fine dining brigade system. It does create complications for a lot of people, whether it's like race or gender, sexuality or disability. But if you're if you are patient, if you really connect with this work. If it's something that you do because you love it, you find these opportunities where you learn from those challenges, you grow, it becomes part of your craft. And we're lucky to have people like that in this world. That makes food better, that makes community tighter. And it's hard to say that like, such a rigid system with so many like trap doors built into it <laughs> can be like the thing that inspires that because that's in us. You, you either have that or you don't. We bring that to yeah. the table. And I think sometimes these brigades can be either side of the blade. They can cut you deeper than anything or you can also learn to work within the system, develop your skills, and then cash out. Okay, got that. Now I'm taking it to where I want to take it. Own this skill. It's mine now. Like, I can transfer this to whatever project I want to work on. I think the hardest thing to find in a rigid fine dining system is that, like, inspiration, finding yourself in that. You know, we're, we're taught all these techniques, but never really encouraged to connect it back to ourselves. What does this mean to me? How am I gonna apply this to my food if I ever get lucky enough to be a real deal chef? What does any of this mean to me? That's one of the, the reasons why I loved working with you, Mike. You were always able to connect what we were doing back to a personal place. And when you see somebody doing that, like it's inspirational to everybody. I've been following the plate Sale since the beginning and it's something that I've always looked up to. I think a lot of people do. But I think there's something really interesting in your like trajectory through it where it started as a pop-up and now it's grown into so many different things and it's so different from the place that it started. I'm interested in how you maintain a vision as it grows and changes and like where do you go as you change as a chef? What inspires those changes?
1: Uh, the plate cell started out as just... A pop-up. We just want to hang out with friends, cook good food, and get feedback. But then my wife's grandmother has land outside of Athens in Oglethorpe County. After she passed, it's who's going to be the next person to step up and not let this go to waste? She was the only one that kept her land, and she has 12 acres, and she kept this land up by herself for 40 plus years. So it's like, oh, we're gonna do this. Farm restoration project, and it's going to go along with everything else that we want to do. Our end goal is we want to be an organization, and everything else that we do will fall under that. So, the plate cell is for my family. So, that's the whole reason. Like, we're doing this to leave a legacy. When it's my time to leave here, like we've left something good and hope that it continues to build.
2: Yeah, no, big time. Yeah. The reason I was excited to talk to you is I feel like. I felt this way for a long time, but I feel like more and more, even through the pandemic, the plate sale, to me, as an outsider, I don't know how it feels to you as the insider, the person running things, yeah. but from the outside looking in, it feels like it could be a really exciting future for restaurants to follow in what you and Shritha have done and built. Like, y'all are following... The path of your life, the way that it unfolds and never losing sight of the vision. I
1: just want to say I felt that like I just had something go through my body. What you just said is like the process that we're in right now because you have to stay the course, you know what I mean, and not give up like you don't want to don't want to lose sight of that. And God, I have to thank my wife for that because she is so it doesn't matter like whatever situation it is. She is. What's the next step we can do to alleviate this problem? Thank you for saying that
2: i yeah I think what y'all have been able to do and what y'all have been able to hang on to it's it's brilliant, and I think more people should hear about it and see it because it's a future for restaurants that I don't think a lot of people are considering, but also it feels so important because y'all are doing things in an old way too. It's like the future of restaurants because you're building something. For your family, you're building something that's a legacy. You're including the land that's important to you. It feels like that's how we should have been doing things all along. And to see that kind of like taking root with you all is like super inspiring. I'm
1: not good at like taking compliments, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say thank you. Yeah, boom, take yeah. it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but like a brick and mortar is still a big part of the goal. Yeah,
1: it is on the forefront. Our restaurant will be called the Mule Train. Some be a restaurant inspired by traditions of Northeast Georgia. And the Mule Train is uh, it's a story of my family in Oglethorpe County. I had an aunt named Mabel Appling. Her and her husband cooked barbecues on the weekends, very community based, and they sold moonshine. And it's totally illegal. But uh, everyone knew them. I was like, that's a really cool name. And I also love that it was community driven and everything. That we inspire to do. And not only that, if you look up the mule train, it was one of Martin Luther King's last advocacy's before he got killed. It was the Poor People's Campaign, and they were gonna march from Mississippi to DC to give a message about poverty in the South. So all of those things have played a major part in what we wanna do going forward. I just wanna highlight where we're from and our families and continue to meet good people like you and get to tell our story yeah that's dope
2: and when y'all open that how much of the brigade system are you gonna keep and how much are you gonna get rid of
1: a lot of it's gonna be gone (laughs) (laughs) we're gonna try to create something new and i've always wanted to do right by people even when i'm not done right by but i have to figure out how i'm gonna do that and still try to be great like michael jordan in that last shot you know what i mean definitely have to have structure people are going to be people you're going to have competition i don't think people's egos are going to go anywhere like that's just it's just part of it but what i can do to help maybe alleviate when it's my time is treating people with respect having compassion knowing how it is to be in the trenches And if you push forward and you have a vision, and that's the main thing, if you have a vision and you wanna work towards it, how can I help you do that? And I want, and I hope when it's my time, I can achieve that to inspire. I mean, I would love to have longevity employees, but if it's your time to go explore, then you need to go blossom, you know what I mean? But if I can help you along that way and doing whatever I can and or teaching you something about a cuisine that you don't know about, that's how I want to play my role and making sure people are treated with dignity, respect, offering fair pay when we get there. I know all this stuff has dollars behind it, and I have... No idea of what the pressures are running a restaurant. I know, Telly, you, you're just opening up a restaurant and you told some of those things, but I'm looking forward to it. I want all of that.
2: Yeah, I feel like a lot of the failure of the pandemic, a lot of the failure of our industry, a lot of the failure of the brigade system is that like it all became so bent on efficiency, just like pumping out stuff, getting... Ticket times down, getting food costs low, keeping payroll under control. And I get it. Yeah. Running a business is tough. This industry is tough. The margins are crazy. It's impossible to become like a rich person off of this work. But also, if you build that into the beginning and you realize that there's monetary wealth and then there's like, Investing in people, treating them like human beings, that's a wealth in and of itself, being surrounded by people that you can watch grow and develop, and like to have the freedoms necessary to succeed in a career field like that's a wealth that's a metric that I don't know we we removed that from the equation to focus on these numbers and profit, but numbers and profit have totally failed us, so it's like. You got to invest in your people. You got to create more open ended systems for people to succeed.
0: A huge thank you to Telly and Mike for sharing with us and to Plate Magazine for inviting us to do this audio accompaniment. To hear more from Mike and Telly.
1: Right now, our form of communication is Instagram. We are at the Plate Sale. I'm at Mag Sheets on Instagram also.
0: They also have a crowdfunding campaign on their website for their up-and-coming restaurant brick-and-mortar, The Mule Train. So check that out on their website.
2: Cool. And we are on Instagram. We're at hags underscore NYC. You can check us out on our website if you use websites still. Uh, it feels like less and less of a thing anymore. www.hagsnyc.com. We're a little restaurant in the East Village, so if you're in our neighborhood, come check us out. Word up.
0: All of these links to find them are in the show notes. Some of the research about the Brigade at the top of the episode is from Jenny Dorsey and the team at Studio Atal. A link to her Instagram post and their research in the show notes as well. Follow us in your favorite podcast app, and find us on various social channels at Copper and Heat to keep up to date throughout the season. And we always love hearing from you, so please send us a message on our website or in our DMs. This episode was produced by me, Katie Osuna, and Rachel Palmer. Music and sound design by Ricardo Osuna. Mixing and mastering was by Adrian Lilly. Thanks so much for listening.